winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 53rd episode in the series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. This episode is a chat with textile artist Shirley Pinder. Shirley grew up in Tobermory, where her mother and father ran Strongarav House. Then eventually they ran the gallery on the main street, where they sold various things, including materials woven by her father and herself. As you'll hear, Shirley's own craft as a textile artist grew over the years and led to lots of fascinating encounters here and away. Shirley brings her childhood and family clearly to life, whilst also giving us a very good picture of how her own career and craft developed, along with bringing up her own family. I was so chuffed that Shirley has so much to say, and it was an absolute pleasure to edit this podcast and hear her tales again. It's the fastest edit I've ever had in the podcast so far. I like it when the guests have so much to say I can barely get a word in edgeways. That always makes me happy. At one point, we reference a story about some visitors from Canada who ended up stranded in Tobermory in Shirley's mother's childhood. Now, I'm not sure they're Inuit, but there certainly were Canadian people that came across and got um, stranded here, got blown off course from, from Canada. And if you want to know more about this, you can find out the whole story in 48 Days Adrift by Captain John Barber, published by Breakwater Books. Shirley's given me lots of photos and other bits and bobs for the website, so do check them out on whatwedointhewinter.com to see more of Shirley's story. I'll be back at the end with a few more havers, and now, hopefully in time for those wishing to eat their breakfast and listen along in New Zealand, it is with great pleasure that I hand you over to Shirley Pinder. Who are you? Well, I'm Shirley Pind, the daughter of William and Isabella Evans from Tubamori, and moved to Mull at the age of three. And it's been my greatest regret that I wasn't born in Mull because I can't call myself a Mullach. And it really irks me because <laughs> I feel a Mullach, but I'm not one. And I was actually born in Sheffield. So we went there oh. in 54. And um, until I went to open high school, obviously, you know, three to 14 was the very formative years of my life living on Mull. It was um, very free. Oh, it's just a great lifestyle for a child to be there. And I'm sure lots of other people you've interviewed have said exactly the same. As I say, I mentioned the thing about the age of four being down on the main street and going on the Bongans bus. And th- just assuming it was a bus and he'd take me home and he couldn't because we were going to Dervik. Or the fact, I was, and I was a wanderer, I must admit. I, I did wander a lot because you were allowed to and, and there were no inhibitions there. You know, you weren't held back because everybody knew you. It was great. You mentioned your mum and dad. So where was your mum from originally? My mum was born in Tupamori. I think it was 51 Main Street. Um, I'm sure it was 51 Main Street. I'm not sure if that's where Karnaberg is. She and my aunt Irini, there were 10 in the family. Some of them were born in Fraserburgh because my grandfather was a fisherman. Then they moved to Benesson, and I'm not sure which members of the family were born in Benesson or when they actually moved to Benesson. But I know my mother and my aunt Irini were born in Tupamori. And then, obviously, my mother went away to the mainland to work. Um, she must have come back to Tupamori during the war, unless she was on holiday. And that's when my father met her. And she got married when he was in the Navy. As I say, they came back in 1954 and bought Strongarif and started the guest house. What was your mother's maiden name? Noble. And uh, Noble, if you um, 
My grandfather was the second coxswain of the Tubermurray lifeboat, the Sir Arthur Rose. And there's a wonderful book. I didn't know anything about him, actually. I don't know if you've seen this, have you? No, no. Well, it's a wonderful story about the Sir Arthur Rose. And it's written by my cousin June Lang's husband, George Mackenzie, who's my Auntie Rini's daughter. That was the youngest of the family. And they were just going around somewhere. And um, and she said, oh, that's where the Sir Arthur Rose was at the Great Exhibition or the Glasgow Exhibition. And none of the family, none of us knew about our grandfather being the second coxswain of the Tubermurray lifeboat. Wow. I didn't know anything about him. My mother never mentioned him. I just thought he was a fisherman. And in fact, when you're reading it, it's really interesting. that he was, There were so, such brave men. It was launched in 1938. And when you read about the shouts during the war, they were incredibly brave. And my grandfather, at one point, seemingly, they'd been out in a 10-hour shout. It was so cold, seemingly. They had, he was rigid with the cold. They had to lift him off. And he was 65, and I think that was the last shout he was ever on. That was just a, a revelation to me, not knowing anything about my grandfather. So the the, the connection with Tubamori has become stronger and stronger the more I've learnt about the family, you know, and um, things have done also. Yeah, so that that's my, my, my grandfather. I'm very proud of him. Yeah, rightly so. Mm. Fantastic. So your, your mother's uh, from Mull, and your father, where did your father come from? He came from Rotherham. <laughs> he, his family were, were steel workers. Um, my fa- I think my grandfather was a smelter in Rotherham and they moved down from Kilmarnock to Rotherham. And I think he was the youngest in the family. I think he was the only one born in England. He joined the Navy when he was very young as a boy sailor. I think he was about 16 and he came out 1948, 49, I think he came out. So he was a regular sailor all during the war. And again, just recently we got the Arctic Star from him for him. Because, again, nobody said anything about the fact that he was on the first convoy, uh, Arctic convoy, um, and nobody, we knew nothing about that. We had an inkling that he'd done something, but um, I got his war record, I got his naval record, and discovered that he actually had been on the HMS Electra on the very first dervish convoy to the Arctic, but he didn't ever speak about it. So I I don't know if it's as you get older, you start making more inquiries, but um, I'm now regretting, like everybody else, I didn't ask my mother more things before she died, you know. Well, that's the question. Yeah, Are there any tales that your mum had about growing up, whether that be in Benessa or even in Fraserborough or Tomori, that stick out, that give you a character of her communities that she was a part of at that time? (laughs) Well, she, she, as I say, she was born in Tubermory, so her memories would be of Tubermory. I get the feeling it was quite a hard life because there were 10 children, um, but they were all, she always said they were always well-fed. There was plenty of food. There was always plenty of food. But I think, um, I think latterly, when my granny was very ill with cancer, I think there were hard times. But she didn't really talk much about the past, really. My mother was very much the kind of person that lived in the day. You know, so, and I didn't ask him any questions, really. You know, it was a shame, but I think she had a very... She certainly sang in the Gaelic choir when she was young, so I think that was quite a big thing. And it, be, it was a very big thing all her life, the Gaelic choir, um, Mull Gaelic choir, and, you know, with Sheena Walker that you spoke to the other day and uh, Dr Clegg and all these people. She was, she loved the Maud, and the Maud was just a great thing. And when she was very, very ill in um, a nursing home in um, Melrose... And Lon Gillis was coming to speak at the book festival because there was a book. And I wrote to the Borders Book Festival and asked them if 
Anne Lauren Gillis could visit my mother. And she said yes. And she and her husband came and they were, oh, she was so nice. And she and my mother sat and sang and Mulach together. Honestly, it brought a tear to my eye. And of course she knew all, you know, Janet McDonald and all that. So they had a great, a great Kaylee about the mods and things like that. So the mod, I think, was hugely important in her life, you know, from a very young age. And was she herself a Gaelic speaker as well? No, she wasn't actually, because um, she wasn't a Gaelic speaker. Why, I don't know. Maybe it was because Gaelic was suppressed in the schools, but I'm not sure of what it was like at her time at school. But she was very... I'm just ignore that, that's the phone. She was very, very clever. And she used to say, you know, I could have got 100% in my Latin if it hadn't been that I didn't dot my eye. The, the teacher took up a 1% off because she hadn't dotted one of her eyes. <laughs> and she told that story for years, you know, years and years and years. And then she did tell me a story, and I don't know how true this was, but she said that uh, an Eskimo boat, Eskimos ended up in Tubamori, that the boat had drifted to Mull. Is that a true story? That is a true story. Really? Well, yeah. she remembers that. I don't know what year what? it was. What? Really? Well, she talked about that. She remembered it, but... I have no idea what date that actually happened. She was born in 1913. Give me a second. I'll get you the book. Hold on. Okay. Two seconds. Uh-huh. Oh. I, I don't see it immediately, but it, it is true. I've got, I do have the book on it somewhere. Well. Yeah. So if it, when, when she, when I wouldn't eat anything, she always recited the story about Eskimos. You know, the Eskimo mother gave the, the children the potato skins and um, they ate the potatoes and the Eskimo children lived because they ate the skin. So that was why I had to eat the skin of my potatoes. I don't know whether that was from the Eskimos coming to Mull or not, but it was always something she said to me about the Eskimos eating the potato skins. I didn't know if they had potatoes in, in there. <laughs> well, who knows? They're funny stories. Anyway. Fantastic, yeah. So um, the house that you grew up in, um, a part of Tobermory is named after it. Strangarev, in, in which in Gaelic means the rough promontory or rough nose. Yes. So, and it's, can you describe what, because it's a big, a big house uh, with a lot of character and it had been the house of, well, do you know the history of the house as well? Yeah, I, well, I thought it was, um, we bought it off somebody called Dr. Sprout, but, um, but there's been a bit on Facebook about that, so I'm actually a wee bit confused now about who we bought the house from. But I know it's connected with the Sprouts, and I believe one of them was a lawyer in a lawyer. Um, you probably know more about it than me do, but some, some, something like that. Anyway, um, we bought it, and it was then obviously at the age of three, it was huge, it was an enormous house, and it had no central heating, it was freezing cold. Um, and we had things like in the kitchen, there were all the bells. So in all the rooms of these, they're still there, I believe, the round ceramic and with the handles. Well, we used to drive my mother and father mad because we'd go around the room ringing all the bells. So they, they got rid of the bells. They took um, all the bells down because we drove them mad, you see, ringing the bells. And then um, it was a, it was a, well, it was a great house to be in because there was a great big banister. So you'd slide from the top to the bottom. You know, you, you, you just started at the top and slid down the banister. That was a daily activity I think in our house sliding down the banister but it was a very gold house and um and it was it was difficult because there were guests there all the time you know but it was a very short season it would be from maybe Easter till September so we were always tuffed out of our bedrooms we had to go I had to go and sleep in the attic above the wash house in the summer 
And then I remember one summer I slept out in the outside garage because they needed all the bedrooms. You know, it was very short season and you had to get through the winter. There was nothing in Tobermory like there is now, you know. And so I can't get over how now when I think back how hard my parents must have worked because it was all damask tablecloths, damask linen, white linen, cotton sheets, and everything had to be washed and you know, I and my mother, I think, would be working till two or three in the morning getting all that done. But there's lots of laughter as well because there's some characters that worked for us, like Hickey McAllister, who taught me how to do the Highland Fling and the and the sword dance, and there was um, Femi McAllister, and then there would be students came back, would work in the summer, like uh, my, my bunty sister-in-law, um, Chrissy McIver, who's Chrissy Archbold, she would come back, and Callie McMillan, so... Don McKinnon's mum used to work there as well. She used to do the housekeeping. So there was always lots of fun and lots of interesting people came to stay as well. I mean, Barry Hesketh, when he came to do the the um, adjudication at the drama festival, he started, He came to stay at Strongariff. And then, um, yeah, there was lots of interesting people. And then my father, he worked in the forestry one, I'm not sure how many winters he did because obviously they needed an income in the winter. And then he went off to Moorer to learn how to hand weave and he bought the loom there and came back and started hand weaving in the house I think the handloom was in the house originally really he moved it up to the shed so he was hand weaving for quite a long time before he actually then got a a power loom which he pedaled you know like the Harris looms he pedaled that and then eventually he put a motor on it because it was very hard work Um, and the business grew so they did less and less in the guest house and I, I think I sold some of the scarves at school when I was about five or six. So I think scarves has been in my life since age of five. And then um, he took on a little shop down in the main street. I can't remember which one. I'm not sure if it was maybe where the soap shop is now. And he had a shop down there. So he would start buying things in. And then he bought the gallery and put the power looms in there. Oh. wasn't ideal, actually, because if any customers came in, they had to stop weaving because it was so noisy. But he did weave over the winter then. And then the gallery just became a shop and the weaving disappeared. When you say it disappeared, what what happened? to the, Did the looms get put into storage? or The looms were just dismantled um, and put into storage. The handloom, the original handloom, by then I was living in Lillysleaf. He sent the handloom down to me. And like history repeating itself, it ended up in the dining room and I started hand weaving. Um, I didn't have any training then, really. Well, I did actually. I had two years at the Scottish College of Textiles, but I didn't I didn't complete my course. So I only did two years. So I did actually have a lot of technical knowledge and I started my own little business in Lillysleaf. Then we moved to Melrose and the loom actually went into a shed again, like my father. And then my daughter came along and I gave up weaving then um, until for 12 years. And then I ended up going to the Scottish College of Textiles and doing a degree in textile design. So I did the I did the full four years then. I actually completed my course at the age of 40, 40, 46. <laughs> I was a bit of a late starter. But my father was wonderful. I mean, he... When I think back of all the things that he wove, I mean, he wove very, very fine head squares. He would weave mohair rugs. He would weave the best of tweeds. I mean, when I was a wee girl, all my clothes were, I had beautiful hand-tailored suits. 
Uh, we used to go through to Glasgow to sit in a square and my parents would take the fabric through and we went through once and it was a time of jacket and asses and I was getting the suit made and I insisted that I had a pink revere on my jacket and a pink blouse to match because I wanted to look like Jackie O and when I came back they hadn't put it on I was so upset I wouldn't wear it I refused to wear it <laughs> but up until about the age of um, 16, 17 I had handmade suits made from my father's handwoven material so, Amazing Yeah Amazing uh-huh. So what, what were the first pieces that you then made when I guess did your father give you a shot of the, the, the loom as a child? Oh yeah I mean I had a table loom so and obviously I couldn't reach the pedals and the hand loom so I had a table loom and then as I got my legs got longer and longer I could actually tackle the, the big loom um, I would just weave whatever he put on the warp, you know, whatever he was wanting to weave to sell, I would just weave. And then in the summer, I would demonstrate in the actual gallery itself. I've got photograph a photograph of me sitting at the loom. Somebody must have taken it demonstrating. So um, that was it. And, and the idea, I actually think I was a bit of a wayward person, really, actually, because I, I went to open high school because I was supposed to be clever, but I'm not sure that I was that clever, actually, at the end of the second year. And in fifth year, I was chosen to go to America for my sixth year to the American Field, by the American Field Service. I went for lots of interviews. And so I um, I was all excited. I'd been in lodgings in Auburn. I'd been away from home. I was so excited. And then I was told I couldn't go. I wasn't allowed to go. My parents wouldn't let me. So I said, well, I'm not going back to school then. That's it. I'm not going back to school. So they persuaded me to go to the Scottish College of Textiles to do textile design, which actually at that time it was very art-based and I hadn't done art at school, I'd done Latin. So it didn't really didn't really click with me then. And at 19, I left and had a son and got married and in two days' time I'll be married 50 years. <laughs> and I'm still with the same husband that I met when I was 17 at college. So, <laughs> Gosh, congratulations, that's... That's a heck of an achievement. Well, Gosh. anyway, so for up until 19, um, I did a bit of hand weaving in Lilysleaf and I didn't really get going on my career until I went. I decided to go to um, Scottish College of Textiles. But by then I had done my higher art. I had done lots of art courses. So I was well prepared for the course. And um, I went back and did four years there and I won some scholarships and... It was um, it was good. It really, really set me up. But it also made me realise that the Scottish textile industry was very traditional. And mm. I didn't want to do traditional textiles. And I'd been brought up doing traditional textiles. So I wanted to do something a bit more innovative and creative. I was quite mm. inspired by Japanese woven designers. And I won a... Oh, right. Yeah, I won a scholarship from um, the International Secretariat to research the um, using lycra in a decorative way. And that's... And all the inspiration for my designs came from Fingal's Cave. Gosh. Rock from Fingal's Cave. So, uh, and what was it about Japanese textile culture that inspired you? Why did, that, why did you connect with Japanese textile culture? What was well, it? It was Japanese contemporary textile, not the traditional, because there, there was a, 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 an amazing company called Nuno Fabrics in Japan, and they did all sorts of things, like um, they used metal filings to put on... on um, on fabrics and they did lots of texture and, and they used high high twist yarns which is is twisted very tight and when it let goes it it creates a texture so I wanted to pursue yeah. that kind of idea of textured fabrics and um, I used um, 
as I say, I've got this um, scholarship from the International Wool Secretariat to, to research that. And I came up with a, a range of fabrics that were very, were very different. They were innovative and new. And, um, and that set me on, on, on to start the business. Describing the the culture of the of the creation of the work, let's see if we can mine down a little bit further into the physical relationship you have and the with space and the loom when you're creating it. What happens with your body? What are the rhythms? What is going through your mind? How do you feel when you're working with this massive object that's you know twice the size of a human? What's how do you feel? How does it feel to be in charge of it? Well, I'm going to have to disillusion you because I didn't do any weaving. <laughs> Obviously, the four years at college, I had to sit at a hand loom. And to be honest, it was really hard work climbing in and out of looms that were little ones and climbing up and pulling things. So when I when I finished college and got my degree, everything I did was a small batch production. I didn't have a hand loom from then on when I left college. Nothing was woven on a hand loom. So I'm not a hand loom weaver. I was a textile designer and everything was sent to a mill um, to be woven, but it was small batch production. But everything that came back from the mill was actually hand finished in the house, and it was quite funny because um, I did actually go to a commercial finisher, and they just laughed at me. They said, "Oh, you can't finish that. That's just you put holes through that." So they ruined my fabric, which actually was quite good in a way, because it made me realise that it couldn't be commercially finished. So it'd be quite difficult for people to copy. So um, what I did was. I laughed because somebody said to me, why don't you patent the finishing technique? I said, well, I've got this great big old sink in the house and I've got these 70-yard legs of fabric and I go, skoosh, 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 put in a bucket, spin in the washing machine and then I hang it on the, on the, on the line to dry. And the washing line, so, or if it was wet, on the pulley. So it really wasn't a scientific thing to patent. You know, um, so sink and bucket industries presents. So everything actually in all the years that around the business, um, we actually did find one washing machine in the end that we could actually put them in the washing machine and wash them, and it gave us the same effect. But every single one was hand steamed by. By then, we had some nice ladies who worked for us and steamed them for us. So I, I'm, I'm not. I wasn't a hand weaver. That's fair enough. <laughs> so you've got your business. How did you find your place in the marketplace? How did you identify the marketplace and how did you then sell? Did you have a shop? Did you sell to other people? Yeah, well, no, what I did was I actually blagged my way into London Fashion Week. Ah. <laughs> you can only get into London Fashion Week if you are stocking one of the, the people that exhibit there. And because we had the gallery in Tupamori, we were selling Pringles socks only the socks nothing else but I said I was I was I sold Pringles so I got I bagged my way into London Fashion Week and I took my portfolio with me and I met a scarf designer Gordana and she really loved what I was doing uh, but I just left college I didn't really have any money and she wanted me she wanted this huge order and I said well I, I can't finance it and so she said well I'll buy the yarn so she paid for the yarn and then I had the scarves woven, and and that's that. She put an order in for I think my first order was nineteen thousand pounds. Oh my god! In the nineteen eighty, nineteen ninety six, that was the first year. And then it just I don't know. I didn't really do much. The 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 product I have to say was different. It was different, and and 
so things just grew from there. I went to trade fairs. I got agents. Um, it just grew by people saw them. I didn't do mass marketing or anything like that. It just happened. I was very lucky. It was very organic. Amazing. You know, it, well, it was quite. It was quite fun. It was good. It was great. And I was sorry my father wasn't there to see me do it, but my mother was. She was there. She saw me. She saw me my degree show, and and she. Um, until she died, I, I was very busy traveling all over the world, you know. So she, but um, it was it was sort of like history repeating itself in a way, you know. Just it was quite strange, but must have been something from that early age that was inside me that I didn't recognize really that until I went to college in nineteen ninety two that really I had a feel for textiles, which must have come from my father, you know. So it was fine. So. And are there any uh, career highlights that stick out for you in terms of this? Because that, that's a fairly late, but you were 46 when you started to be a student, is that right? I was 45 when I graduated. Um, yeah, with lots of highlights. I mean, one of them one was when the Queen opened the Kelvin Grove, reopened the, the Kelvin Grove Gallery. She was given one of my scarves. Highlights for me were um, being taken on by the Royal Academy in London and designing scarves to go along with their exhibitions. So I did um, scarves for um, Anish Kapoor exhibition. Uh, so that was lovely. And it was a, he did wow. a sculpture that was like a cone that was pleated. So my scarf was a red pleated cone, a red pleated scarf that, mm. you know, was the colour of the red. All sorts of things like that. They, they were the things I enjoyed the most because it would send me a painting or and I had to design a scarf from the painting. I did one for the um, Glasgow boys in the... Uh, in the Kelvin Grove, and it was um, the ballet dancer Pavlova, so I did a scarf for them as well. The only one that I was terribly disappointed I didn't get was the David Hockney exhibition. I didn't get to do the scarf for the David Hockney exhibition, so I was a bit disappointed about that one. But they, they, they were, that was the things I loved. But I think the travel was the thing I enjoyed the most as well, because I was going to a country for a reason and meeting the people that lived there and being involved in it, so, you know, but... And in terms of the scale of your operations, how many were there in your team? Um, well, it varied depending on how much work we had, actually. Everybody had other jobs, so they came in and did what they, you know, they spent so many times hours with us. So uh, at the height of our, we had a very big contract with Hobbs in the high street, and that we had to, we had to use outside manufacturers to sew the scarves for us. I can't really say, it just fluctuated, but... Um, I mean, I wasn't the best at marketing myself. I, I got some postcards printed up when we were going to a trade fair in London and I, I sent the postcards out and this lady appeared on the stand, this buyer appeared on the stand and I said, oh, how did you find out about me? And she said, you sent me a postcard. <laughs> so I kind of went, oh dear. And that was a buyer from Hobbs and we must have worked wow. for about six or seven years and that they were they were huge. That was an enormous... So we did work. I mean, we saw... That was a second-class stamp well spent then. It was. But, but I'm standing there going, you know... <laughs> oh, I thought, oh, certainly, for goodness sake. Um, but anyway... So how, in terms of building the the people that you worked with, so just thinking of the listener of this, like there, there may be young people who are interested in, in, in the craft of fabrics that want to know how to develop their trade and find ways to, to, to approach designers such as, as yourself and manufacturers. Um. How how did you pick out the people that you wanted to work with? What was it about them that you went, ah, you've got what I need? Um, you mean in terms of who to sell to? No, in terms of the people that you worked with around you. Um, well, 
I didn't really work with anybody around me. I mean, we, people came and ironed and people came and sewed. So obviously I had to assess their technical skills that they were able to do um, the sewing and the ironing as we wanted them. But I didn't really, there was only my husband and I and some part-timers that came in and out. So it was very small concern in terms of the manu- of the production. But, yeah. you know, we worked very hard. We didn't have a factory and we didn't have um, a big concern. It was just um, quite small, but we did big big business. You mentioned there the the international travel. Is there anywhere that really stood out and being like, oh my gosh, this is somewhere I can I can learn from. This is somewhere that I've made a connection with that really resonated with you. You mentioned Japan earlier on. Yeah, I think I would have liked to spend. Uh, we, we were chosen to go out to Japan to what they call it's called the Hankyu British Fair, and we were asked to go out there, invited to go out there. And I would have liked to have spent more time in Japan looking at the traditional textiles and the contemporary textiles because. The, as I say, I was very inspired by this company called Nuno, and I would like to have spent more time developing ideas. But, you know, when you're running a business, you you don't have that um, luxury of spending time to play around with things. You've just got to – it's a very short space of time. You know, I had a time scale. Sort of June, I would be de- deciding what colours I needed for the following year. So then I decide on all of that, and the yarn had to come in in September. I maybe only had about a month or six weeks to actually design. The rest of it was manufacturing. You're not sitting, not sitting there saying, "Oh, there's a lovely blue sky. What can I do today?" You have to really, you know, it's, it's industrial design. It wasn't airy fairy sort of design. Yeah, that's it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> Let's draw back now to uh, to Mori and growing up. Then, can I? I'm always interested to find out uh, the characters and stories of the town growing up. Um, who were the characters that stick out from you in in, uh, in North Mull, or even did you go down to Benesson at all? And no, not really. We we, we stuck more more to Tubermory. Um Well, people that sort of featured um, largely my life and things that I did. Um, because my parents were so busy in the summer, they didn't have time to do anything with us, like take us to the beach. So um, I would, at a very young age, maybe five or six, ring Alec Cow at the McDonald Arms and I would say, Mr Cow, could I book a seat, please, to go to Calgary on Sunday on the bus? And my mother would make me a packed lunch and I would get the bus and I'd go off to Calgary on my own. And the bus driver, whoever was there, whether it was Jimmy Heron, I can't remember any of the others, would look out for me and they'd come and get me and tell me when it was time to go home. So, you know, Alec Cowell and Donald Arms featured quite hugely in my life. I was a great wanderer. I, I wandered everywhere. And I remember being down on the main street, must have been about four, and age four, and um, the Bongan was there. And I thought, is this my imagination? Am I just remembering the name Bongan? But something actually came up in Mull Stories today and the Bongan had a bus, and I got into the bus and asked the Bongan if he could take me home, but he said no, he couldn't because he was going to Derfink, so I had to walk all the way home to Strangariff up the hill. Um, now, a four-year-old, you wouldn't let a four-year-old go wandering like that now. And then my Uncle Andrew and my Uncle Jockey, they were wonderful. They were absolutely wonderful with me. I mean, they they would take me out in their boats, and we'd go, I'd go fishing with them, and um, and they were just amazing. You know, because they had rowing boats and launches. And Uncle Jockey had the Jane and he had a rowing board. And I was allowed just to go out in the boats on my own at a very young age without a life jacket on and I couldn't swim. And I'd be out all day in the rowing boat because a beautiful clinker built rowing boat. So I have a huge love of the sea. And um, and then 
I think, which was really important as well in my life, was um, Ava McLaughlin and Mr. Wilson, who started the Sailing Club. Oh. Has anybody... T- you must have talked about I this. I don't know much. Oh, well, no, I don't. Well, Ava McLaughlin and um, Mr. Wilson, the Bet started a Sailing Club. Well, that was just fantastic, because then I was out with uh, Mr. Wilson's son, Adam Wilson, who I think still sails in Tobermory. He's, I met him just recently, and he and I used to sail together. I always crewed, and he it was his boat. He had a, I think he had a cadet. And, of course, the regatta was just wonderful then because we would race in the regatta, and I would race rowing races as well. So wow. that was a huge thing for me. But um, Where was the path? Of, where where were the, was the course of the regatta? Um, it was in the bay, just in the Tupamori Bay itself. But the, the, the sailing club was down at the bathing boxes, and they had a... They had a shed built down there and there was cadet boats and there was some kayaks as well. So maybe, I don't know, maybe sort of 10, 11, 12, 13, I spent a lot of time sailing with Adam Wilson and we won we won cups. And then at the regatta, you'd go up to the, the pier at the top and there'd be the prize giving. So that was, I lo- actually loved sailing with Adam Wilson. It was just wonderful that that something like that but then there was the brownies and the guides and then there was always the school sports all these things that happened and somebody came to Tubermory in the summer and did ballet lessons with us but I can't I've been asking Tony and Fiona McKenzie if they could remember who it was but they can't but somebody came and uh, we had ballet lessons so at one point I wanted to be a ballet dancer a one short-legged ballet dancer unfortunately so that that wasn't going to be very good uh, but the sailing was fantastic. That was great. Um, well, just as I say, going on the Bongans bus, you know, I, I thought that was just a figment of my imagination, but it wasn't. You know, I just assumed that if I saw a bus, it would take me home because I'd come from a city, you know, and, and it didn't. Who was it that ran the, the, the guides and the brownies? Who were who were the um, brownells? Lexi, Lexi McNeil and Margaret Kane. And they were lovely. They were they, they, they were lovely. But I really didn't want to be a brownie or a guide. I wanted to be a scout. Mm. I thought mm. scouts were much more exciting than brownies to be and guides, to be honest. And I think I left the guides eventually. I'd have much rather been a, a scout than a than a guide. But I think what it, was it about the scouts that appealed to you? Oh, because they were out in boats and they were sawing woods and they were chopping and doing boyish things, you know. So I was more of a tomboy than a than than a girl. I got into terrible trouble from my mother when I'm thinking about guides because I did have a guide uniform. And next door to our house was Alva House and there was Colonel Miss McLean lived there. Um, there was a Miss Thompson in it until 1957 and she died and the McLeans came and lived. And one of the competitions in, at Tobermory Primary School or Secondary School was you had to recite two poems, Lord Ellen's Daughter and Beth Gellett. And Mrs McLean coached me and I won the prize for both of them but my mother wanted me to wear my tweed suit that my father had made and I refused and I said I was wearing my guide skirt and a pair of broken sandals and a top that had a hole in it and she was ashamed of me (laughs) not very pleased with me and then after that I ended up having to recite these poems at the Cayleys that the Balachan organised in the summer holidays for the tourists and who's the Balachan I don't know that name the Balachan the Balachan well, he must, he must have another name, but he was like community council and he organised Cayleys in the middle of the week. I think it was a Wednesday night during the, the season for the tourists. And I'm sure he was called, yeah, called the Balachan. You'll find out from some somebody, they'll, they'll 
They'll correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, because I did dancing at the Highland Games, I had to dance a sword dance and the Highland and the Highland Flink and recite these two poems. Uh, so weekly, on a weekly basis, until um, I got a bit older and I thought I don't really want to do this anymore. I had a boyfriend in the in the in the <laughs> in the audience and I'm embarrassed, so I didn't want to oh. do it. Can you say who that boyfriend was? No, he was just somebody there on holiday. Just it was just uh. a anyway. That's nice. And well, can you still remember Lord Ulan's daughter to this day? That's my next um, question. No, I can't actually. I could remember it for long enough. The other big um, um, impact on my life was definitely the music on in Tubermory. There is absolutely no doubt about it that being a, a toddler and being taken to the regatta dance and the games dance has stayed with me all my life. And I still go dancing. I still go to Cayley dancing down in the borders. Absolutely. It's been one of my passions all my life. And I put that down to the wonderful, wonderful music we got from P. Brock and Bobby McLeod and Jim Johnson. But Sheena Walker talked about that in her podcast as well. Yeah. We, we, we had the best of music to listen to. It was amazing. You know, it was fantastic. And there is a difference between the West Coast and the East Coast music. The West Coast has definitely got that extra something. And I don't know if you've heard of Charlie Kirkpatrick? Yes, of course. Well, he's got the band and he came down to Lauder not long ago. So I was um, I was at the dance when he was playing and I was in seventh heaven because I thought that's the kind of music I was brought up on, that beat that you, you get that... Um, you don't, and then the East Coast music's wonderful as well, but there's just that extra something, you know. Funnily enough, I was just um, last week I was trying to chat to Anda Campbell. Uh, it's Andy's player. Yeah, we danced to yeah. Anda as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, we unfortunately the recording failed. Um, so we had, to, but this was one of my questions with him was okay. East Coast, West Coast, because I'm a fiddle player. And when I was a kid, I was very conscious of, oh, you don't want to be playing that. You, That's East Coast style. You want to play the West Coast style. It's like, <laughs> but I like both. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I, hadn't, um, I hadn't appreciated the difference between the two, to be honest. Um, that, that was just... And, and, of course, I think it's changing. The landscape is changing now. Yes. It's it's, um, it's session A9. <laughs> it's somewhere up the middle there. <laughs> Well, I just hope we can get back dancing now. I'm not sure what, what the situation will be in the winter, but the, there are dances every week here in the borders. But I don't know if you have dances in Tubermory anymore. Not really? so much that I'm conscious of. No, no. Um, I would always end up playing at things rather than badly, but uh, as anyone who's danced to my music will tell you, but or tried to dance. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's uh, I'm not so conscious of it, no, but about, I know... Th- I can feel it on the other side of this is that all we need is a big, we need a heck of a big Kaylee. really do. And it's, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, we're all very conscious of that. Yeah. Well, when we started dancing down here in the borders, I, I, I was one of the youngest ones and I'm almost one of the oldest ones, you know, and it's difficult. There are no young ones coming in, unfortunately, to, to keep the dancing going, you know, it's a shame. But, but as I say, that, that to me was just a fantastic legacy, the music that we listened to in Tobermory. I mean, how lucky to be living in the same place as these amazing musicians, you know, playing at dailies and weddings and things. It's fantastic. You've settled in the borders. I guess was the choice to go to the borders to study first of all. 
Yes, and then I met my husband in the borders. I met him at college, and we had a roundabout, roundabout life, different places, and then ended back in the in the borders because my husband ended up working in a mill in Galashiels, so that's why we got back here. Mm-hmm. And what is it about the borders that you like? I've talked about this with um, Richard Kelly, whose episode will be coming out soon, episode number fifty. Who's a, a local paramedic, and he's from the other side. He's from Berwick way. And, oh, that's uh, yeah, that's just an hour away from us. Yeah. So what is what is the identity of the borders for you? Um, well, it's not got the dramas of, of the West Coast, definitely in terms of weather. The weather, the climate is much better and um, it's very quiet. I mean, people drive through and get up to the Highlands or to the West Coast, so it's not hugely busy with tourists. I mean, today you come out here, it's absolutely stunning. I mean, it's beautiful. We've had the most beautiful walk by the River Tweed at Dryborough and the wildflowers and... It's not mull, don't get me wrong, it's not mull, but it's the next best thing, you know, and it's also incredibly handy for Edinburgh because a lot of the things I love doing are at the art galleries and that's where I met Sheena Walker. I walked in one day and there was Sheena and I thought, oh, I know you. (laughs) She works at the Royal Scottish Academy and uh, I go up sometimes and help her but and I visit galleries, so I love the galleries. And it's always nice to speak to folk from Mull. In fact, I had a funny experience in February. I was going on this um, trip to Greece, Santorini, a heritage trip through Grandpa's travelling. It was a student thing. I'm not a student, but it's for advanced, you know, learning and enlightenment, yeah. things like that. Anyway, I saw this name, Michelle Cow, and it turned out it was Michelle Cow from Mull. Yeah. But it wasn't that funny. What a coincidence. So we got in touch with each other. And then I... That very same week, I think it was the next day, I was walking around um, Melrose and I saw this woman and I thought, I know that woman, she's from Mull. So I stalked her round and round and I thought, oh, go on, just, if it's not her, it doesn't matter, she'll just think I'm an old fool. But it was Sheena McGilvery, but Sheena Allen from Killacronin. Killacronin, yeah, yeah. Um, so all in one week, I met these two folk from Mull. So it was lovely. So we had a real oh, good Haley in a coffee shop, the paid of us. It was lovely. That's lovely. So um, you don't get that many folk from Mull down here, you know, but but I do, I, I, I enjoy it hugely, the crack. Anyway, I'm Haver on now, which I'm on. <laughs> all, this is all about Havers, that's all that matters. Um, and I was going to say, um, you mentioned your son and your daughter. Um, do you, I, 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 is there only two children you have? Or? Oh, no, I've got three. I've got two sons and one daughter, and one son... He's so proud he was born in Tubermore. Well, he was born in Oban because you had to go to Oban, but he's registered in Tubermore and he is so proud of the fact that he actually is a mullah. So um, that's you and that's our middle one. Our other two children were born in Galashiels, but they all have a soft spot for mullah. Although I I stopped sailing about the age of 13 or 14 because I went to Oban High School and then life changed. But I did take up sailing again in my mid-50s. And one of the highlights of going to Mull was sailing a dinghy at Calgary. Mm. You know, there's a man that has boats down there. Not so much now, unfortunately. Nigel uh, used to be. Yeah. Nigel. Well, a few years ago, he had a little um, topaz, and I, I hired it, and I sailed. I whisked up and down on Calgary. Oh, that was just fab, because I, I just love Calgary. I mean, that was heaven to me, Calgary, when I was a wee girl, you know. And then and I started kayaking as well, so I kayaked all round Tubermory Bay as well. In fact, my husband said to me, "No, 
I'm going to the lighthouse for a walk because that's what he loves doing. He said, you've not to go further than that boat in the middle of the bay. Well, as soon as he went out of sight, I was away over to Irish on by Calvin back home before he got back from the lighthouse. And then I had a, a lovely sail. I always wanted to sail up um, the, the, you know, the, the from Oban to Tupamari. And I never did that as a little girl. And West Highland Week was such a big thing. So I did that a few years ago on a... On a an old boat, a big old boat, I sailed up the Sound of Mull. So that was still lots of nice memories of Mull. It's lovely, isn't it? It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, just to sort of, uh, before we round off, what do your children do? What, what are their occupations? Um, well, my daughter works for the Red Cross in London and oh. my uh, son works in the oil industry. My older son, he works in the oil industry. My other son works in commerce. He works for a cycling company called Hotlines that's attached to Wiggles. So he's he lives in Peebles. They've moved back from London. So he and, and um, my daughter-in-law and granddaughter live in Peebles. And my other son lives in St Boswell's. But they've all got a soft spot for Mull. I mean, my, my Frank, my older son, he does a Mull rally. And he got married in Tobermory. He didn't tell us, but he got married, uh, I can't remember, two, maybe three or four years ago. He and his wife went up to do the Targa rally, and they got married at nine o'clock, or half past nine, and the next minute they were doing the rally. He and Kevin, his um, cousin, are great pals, and they've been rally fanatics all down to the Mull rally again, you know. Well, that's great. I think we've covered a lot. That's just about an hour, which is amazing, so that's great. Oh, well, you. I hope you're going to edit this quite a bit. Oh, it won't need much editing at all. Perfect. So, well, but, Shirley, thank you so much for your time. That's lovely. It's been really interesting hearing about the, the connections from home and then how that led you through to, to where you've come to today. And ah, it's amazing. Thank you. Not at all. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me, Shirley. I really appreciate it. As I said earlier on, do head over to our website, whatwedointhewinter.com, to see the photos and other goodies that Shirley has shared with us. At one point, Shirley identifies a gentleman by the name of The Balachan. Now, I didn't know who this was, and I thought you, the listener, may be curious if you're not from here and didn't know who they were, so I asked around on Facebook for some information. Thank you to Eric McIntyre and Dougie McNeilidge, Katrina Lloyd and Jane Trainer, who were all able to help me find out that the Balachan was John Cameron, whose family operated the telephone exchange at Burnbank in Tobermory, and he organised social events and was one of the key figures in organising the Mull Highland Games, and he passed away in 1968. So thank you so much, guys, for that. There's so much in this episode, so thank you, Shirley, as well. That's really, I really appreciate it. I just wanted to say a quick hello to those of you listening in the bath. I'm led to believe that a good number of our listeners listen in the tub of an evening to unwind. So, hello to the bubble posse. Every now and again, I run a quick survey online to see how you're listening to the podcast and to figure out different strategies to try and spread the word about what we do in the winter. So, if you've got two minutes uh, spare and are so inclined, I'd love to hear from you via our survey. And one of the things I was wondering was about making some sort of branded podcast merchandise for Christmas time, you know, wee mugs and coasters and so on, just to see if this is, you think this is something that would, people would be interested in. So you can find a link to it in the text that accompanies this episode on our website. And if, if you do take the time to fill in the survey, thank you so much. Now, if you want to support the podcast, please feel free to click the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But of course, don't worry if you can or you don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened and went on a wander with us than, than not. 
And on that note, thank you so much to our monthly supporters. As you know, I really, really appreciate it. If it was possible to leave a star review on whichever platform you use to listen to the podcast, I'd be really grateful too. It just helps spread the word about the project and makes the stories more available to other listeners. And thank you to all of you who reach out and say hello. It absolutely makes my day to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. More and tang. Shin a day.